Hey all, before we get started with the podcast, both a fair warning and apology for the audio issues during this. My audio, of course, had some serious issues and we did not want to trash the whole commentary, so I did my damnedest to raise it from the depths of Tartarus. If this is your first time listening, though, I do assure you that this is unusual for us, but Really sorry, luckily it was only on my end, everybody else's audio is fine, so hopefully, regardless of all that, enjoy the show. How do you do? The box office pulp board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet. Analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh... For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. promotion they should have or like you sell in you send in a proof of purchase and they send you a pack of underwear i was concerned you were going to say proof of purchase instead of proof of perfect purchase it was going to be like proof of shit pants like you have to send in (laughs) (laughs) please mail your shitted underwear to shitted shitted (laughs) underwear (laughs) we need your soiled (laughs) Pantaloons sent to our <laughs> your fouled garments. Please send bum, them bum, to bum, our bum, 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 address. We swear we're not perverts. We swear. <laughs> Welcome to box office pulp, motherfuckers. <laughs> I'm not doing another clean intro. We're we're starting with this odd conversation about how Jepson's Malort should have to send you fresh pants for all the ones you shit. This is the kind of energy I'm bringing into our Saw 3 commentary. Folks, if you haven't gathered, thank you so much for joining us. We're doing a bop and a movie entry for Saw 3 tonight. So hopefully you have a fresh pair of pants, a hunger for Malort, and a copy of the unrated version of Saw 3. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me tonight are my co-hosts, Mike. Say hello, Mike. All right, so stay with me for a second. So there is an alternate universe where Jeff's kid isn't killed. Get... Grows older, has a nice full life, has kids. One of those kids ends up being the villain in a post-apocalyptic film starring Christian Bale and Tay Diggs, where he battles Christian Bale. Is is his son a dragon? No, no, no. Other Christian Bale post-apocalyptic movie. 
I guess it really wasn't post-apocalyptic. It was dystopian. I'm sorry. Wrong. Yeah. Oh, now I got you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That checks. Okay. That makes more sense. Okay. You had me very lost. I'm like, this man clearly would not be able to breathe fire. You assume. This intro is real something. Uh, Jamie, (laughs) say hello. Am I the only one in this podcast that has a paranoid fear that whenever you're on your deathbed, as soon as you flatline and Mike and I think we're finally free, you're going to whip out a tape recorder, personally, (laughs) and and begin your last commentary introduction. Anyway, welcome to Box Office Full. That is true. When they do my autopsy, they're going to find multiple tapes just encased in in rubber and stuck in my stomach. Like, I'm just going to be putting things in condoms and swallowing them. No one will know why until after I die. To save your sibs, you're going to have to record this podcast. Uh, If you don't, your heads will explode. They might anyways, because I'll be too dead to actually stop the explosion. (laughs) We have to record another Inception commentary. (laughs) (laughs) We were free! Live or die, it's your choice. I'm still covered in pain guts, but for unrelated reasons. Yeah, that's just for your own funsies. Yeah. Uh, So as I said before, folks, there are multiple forms of Saw 3 out there. Uh, The version I had and took notes on is something like 15 minutes shorter than the director's cut that we're actually doing the commentary on. Uh, So don't make my mistake. You're going to want the unrated two hour long version of Saw 3 if you're going to watch along with us tonight. Um, I believe this is available on Amazon, uh, but I could be wrong. Um, Usually whenever it's streaming, it's whenever I think it's streaming on either Hulu or Max or both. Uh, Sometimes Prime has it, but not as often as the other ones. The reason we're going with the director's cut is it's just Bowsman kind of considers it the canon cut. Um, It's definitely the most... (laughs) The director considers it the better cut? (laughs) It's like it's in the Um, name. Well, I mean, how many director's cuts are called director's cuts that aren't director's cuts? Um, yeah, that's fair. I got you, the wolf man. <laughs> but um, <laughs> even though it's, you know, maybe uh, it's more, admittedly more like plotting, it has more, um, it's definitely an improvement over the theatrical cut, which is still good, but it's the most change of all the additional cuts of the other, of the, all of the Saw movies. Much like um, it's, it's not just extra gore. Blood. There's like actual different scenes yeah. that are thrown into this, so it, it does make a it lot different. more character moments. Um, and really, the actual added gore from this and the unrated cut is minuscule. So, anyways, I don't know why we're justifying to you which one we're doing a commentary on. Uh, we were going to do it this way, anyways, whether you approve or not, Dad. But if you want to drink along with us, uh, oh boy, tonight's official drink of box office pulp is the bitter end. Another Malort cocktail I am very excited to drink. Uh, The actual line I wrote my notes was, Once more into the Malort depths I plunge, which uh, was my emo poetry for the week. Anyways, the bitter end is the concoction of the Owl Bar in Chicago. What you're going to need is three ounces of Malort. You're going to need three ounces of grapefruit juice. Uh, To reiterate, I didn't, didn't stutter. It's, it's... Two shots worth of Malort go into this drink. And I don't know why I picked it, besides the name made sense for where we are in the Saw trilogy. Also, uh, besides the Malort and the grapefruit juice, you're going to need one can of Stiegel Radler, which is a grapefruit beer. So to make this pretty simple, uh, put a couple of large ice cubes in glass, combine the Malort and the grapefruit into a shaker, uh, add ice, shake, 
strain that into your glass filled with ice and then top it with the Rattler. Oh, I wish I had vamped a little longer because I have this sitting in front of me and I am just dreading what it's going to taste like. But here we go, folks. The bitter end. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mm. Oh, that was a mistake. How it somehow makes the grapefruit worse and you can't even taste the Rattler. The Malort's too strong. Oh, dear God. What? Why is this a thing? Chicago, what <laughs> happened to you? Are you okay? I'm I'm very concerned about uh concerned about my friends to the south here. This is I know the bear season isn't going well, but you don't have to poison yourselves. More of these oh. drink segments should end with why is this a thing? It is Oh my god, if I paid money for that in a bar, I would I think I would have to kill the bartender, the bar manager, and then myself. But like rapid fire, because I wouldn't want this taste in my mouth any longer. So it just becomes a scene and, from near dark. <laughs> I have some delicious ginger tea. Oh man, that sounds good. It's good. It's really good. It sounds that sounds really good. It sounds very refreshing. Mm, God damn it. We got a lot more of these to do. I know. I don't know what I, I this one's got two shots of Malort. I'm gonna run out of Malort before the end and be like, oh geez, guess I don't have to buy another bottle. I'm free. No, you're gonna have to buy another bottle of Malort, which is gonna put you on a watch list. <laughs> It'll be too late. All the clues were there, Mr. Policeman. Uh <laughs> Whatever. All right. Let's. Uh, I can't wait till we get to the man being drowned in pig intestines. That'll be a relief compared to what I am drinking right now. Folks, do not make the bitter end. Don't. Please do not. I. I like you too much for you to do what I'm doing. Jesus Christ. Uh, Don't Mike, be like your uncle Cody. Now do it, Mike. Do you want to count us down? Got another puzzle piece out of your skin, Cody. <laughs> All right. One, two, three. Oh. Bum, bum, bum. We can run through the saw facts super fast this time because it's all the same people from like the other <laughs> first four saw movies. Darren Lynn Bowsman is your director. Once again, he's back from saw two. Uh, he also does saw four and spiral from the book of saw. This one was also written by Lee Winnell. No shocker there. He's done writing passes on two. He wrote one and three. Our cast, Tobin Bell is back as Jigsaw. Shawnee Smith is back as Amanda Young. Donnie Wahlberg gets a cameo. Eh, kind of, he's in like two scenes, as Detective Eric Matthews. Uh, and we have some newcomers, including Angus McFadden as Jeff. He's a Scottish actor. Uh, I'm a little surprised looking at his filmography because he started in Braveheart, as of all things. Uh, but he's also been in prestige movies like The Lost City of Z and We Bought a Zoo. But here he is. <laughs> It's bonkers that Angus McFadden is in this movie. <laughs> Each uh, one of these has amazing gets that they logically shouldn't have. Right. Uh, McFadden has a, a long career in TV as well, so you've probably seen him in something like Outlander, uh, Superman Lois, he plays Jor-El. He was in Chuck, Criminal Minds, Lie to Me, Californication, and Spartacus. He was all over TV. Uh, he even played Blackbeard in the 2006 Hallmark Channel Blackbeard miniseries. So good luck getting that out of your head. Wait, you wait, wait, wait. There's a Hallmark Blackbeard miniseries? It was like a three-part miniseries. He sees Blackbeard. I assume he sails the seas. On the uh, Hallmark Channel? Yeah, man. I'm not Does making this up. It's on his wiki page. Does he own a bed and breakfast? <laughs> 
maybe no there's like harlequin novels about like busty wenches on pirate ships right hallmark has to have gotten into that action at some point anyways moving on we also have uh bahar uh, sumek as lynn an iranian actress she retired from acting in 2014 uh but she also had a lot of television work so she was in episodes of bones the ghost whisperer castle and csi um and two major film roles crash and mission impossible three Yes, please bring up the fact she's the interpreter for Mission Impossible. <laughs> now the same year. I just love that so much. <laughs> hey, it's a big movie. It counts. I'd brag about that for the rest of my life if I was even like anonymous extra number five in a Mission Impossible film. No, we all fucking remember the interpreter from Mission Impossible 3. Yeah. Even though it's not like a named character, we know who that is. Uh, our cinematography is by David A. Armstrong. He was the DP for the first six Saw movies. We went a little more into him in the previous commentary. Uh, our music is by Charlie Clouser. Once again, I think he's done the music for all of the Saw films, uh, even kind of the spinoff entries. Uh, our editing is by Kevin Guerrero. Uh, he edited the first five Saw films, and he would direct six, seven, I'm sorry, Saw 3D, and Saw 10. Our release date, October 27th, 2006. This was just one day shy of the full year anniversary of the second Saw's release, October 28th, 2005. The budget was $10 million with a worldwide box office of $164.9 million, which, barring a surprise, uh, surprise result from Saw 10, the highest grossing Saw film. Which honestly surprises me because Saw is so ubiquitous in culture, you would have assumed there would have been one that made like $300 million. But this was early 2000s, so with inflation, I have no idea what that comes out to. There's your Saw fact. It's everybody from Saw 2. They're back. They're doing basically the same things. And, oh, here's Donnie Wahlberg. This is an artifact from a long ago time when the Saw movies had creative consistency. The last time this would ever happen. So I can't tell if this is a really bold move. Filming this with only the flashlight as the light because it sets the tone. It's dark. It's spooky. Uh, or if it's just very frustrating because you can't tell what's happening for the most part because it's just one flashlight. I, I really like the choice of the flashlight. And it keeps consistency of um, kind of the darkness being, of the room. Yeah, there being a light source that kind of opens the movie in some way. Yeah. Uh, I should. Ooh, what a great foot break. Uh, I should mention, I opened the last commentary by saying Saw 2 starts a tradition of each movie opening with a trap. So naturally, this one opens with not really a trap, just to make me look dumb. <sighs> we, hey, we have, like, fair, that was a last minute change. That's true. This was originally supposed to be in the middle of the film, which I think maybe makes a little more sense, but it does give the movie a lot of pizzazz to start. Plus, it's oh. fun because it opens up right where the last movie stops. So if you are binging these... You have instant continuity, and it, it really ties things together very nicely. Yeah. Plus, this essentially is the trap scene that we would have expected to start yeah. with. It also kind of introduced you the idea that we're going to start jumping around in timelines a bit. Not to mention it establishes from moment one that for, uh, for the finale of this first arc of Saw they're going to be breaking all of the rules. Yeah. How do you better establish that than, hey, we're going to open with somebody who was supposed to be left for dead as per the rules of the first movie 
actually getting out and kind of defying the ending that we just left you with. It is nice because the expectation is he's going to cut his foot off and he stops and thinks about it and goes, that's fucking stupid. And he just smashes his foot apart to get out. <laughs> a thing you think maybe a doctor would stop and think about in the first movie. Not not to, to be the guy who picks at threads, which is very easy to do in these films, but it's such a dumb way to do film criticism. But it's just it's, very funny that they get to this film is like, wait a minute, fuck that. I'll just break my foot into a pulp and slide it right out. It's also just a, a really smart way of, you open the movie so showing somebody something you don't really realize until you go back and rewatch as to like what the movie's communicating to you. It's it's introducing, hey, here's somebody actually doing the thing Jigsaw wants to have wants them to do. Like, okay, he won the game. He actually he didn't cut off his foot, but he broke his foot and still got out of the chain, so he did the thing that Jigsaw wants people to prove themselves to do. Well, the the whole thing was he already lost the first game, right? He was supposed to sit in that room and just not beat the shit out of Jigsaw. And he couldn't do that. So the breaking of his foot really doesn't matter at all. He's already lost. It doesn't his matter, but it's still part of the overall ideal per Jigsaw's yeah, rules. Like, Jigsaw knew correct. that he got out, then it'd be like, okay, that's fair. Yeah. Well, of course, at this point in the movie, we don't even know if Dr. Gordon is alive. So we don't know how much Jigsaw actually respects people that go through and escape his trap rooms. Also, this fucking Hellraiser trap is so cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> actually, kind of inspired they, they wanted it to be more Hellraiser with him dangling off the floor, suspended by hooks, with hooks because through his teeth. Which I love so much. This is the Ichi the Killer fucking... Is is that where the poster design came from? Like the teaser poster with the three yep. teeth on strings? They based I their wanted... entire ad campaign around teeth for this opening opening trap, only for them having to pull that, and then there's just no tooth in them during the movie. <laughs> it's fine. It the first saw that things it... were the wheels were starting to come off the Saw franchise. <laughs> it's it's still a great poster and it gets the point across. Uh I always like talking about the saw marketing because I feel like more often than they not, more often than not, they hit the mark. So the the poster for three, if people need a reminder, it's just like a white background, kind of a scuzzy clinical look, and there's three teeth on a string, or like a piece of barbed wire or something like that. You know, it's it's disgusting just having the teeth hanging out like that, and it instantly reinforces the marketing campaign from Saw Two, whereas like the two severed fingers in the white background or the severed foot from one. And I, I love it when ad campaigns can devise a, an identity across a fan franchise. It feels like it makes advertising so much easier because you don't have to do anything special. You do a poster kind of in the same template of the first with some new pizzazz, and people instantly can tell from a distance, oh, cool, a new saw is coming. Yeah, even Jigsaw with uh, Happy Clown Man. Uh, uh, Tobin Bell was weirdly iconic for a movie that didn't make <laughs> that much of a splash. <laughs> Meanwhile, we still got Hoffman on those. Yeah, we, we should mention, so one of the original producers of the series, Greg Hoffman, passed away uh, before this film was made, and uh, a lot of the creative talent said they came back because they wanted to do one more for Greg. Greg wanted the franchise to continue. Uh, and to honor him, we have this new character, Detective Greg Hoffman, who we're introduced to at the start of the scene. Uh, Hoffman, I would say, is a divisive character within the Saw franchise. I, I don't think any of us particularly like movie Hoffman. 
I don't I don't think that's a stretch. I don't think any of the ones gonna pop and be like, God damn it, I love Greg Hoffman so much. Which is frustrating. Oh, no, I can't over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta separate because I don't want to sound like I'm talking ill about the producer. I don't have anything there I want to say. It's it's really unfortunate yeah, the character is the same name. We don't like the character. <laughs> that's this Mandalore. We'll just we'll just talk Mandalore. about it. Well, I don't want people to think I'm talking bad about the Mandalorians. Oh god, we're fucked. Acting too off corner. Exactly. I love Star Trekkers. (laughs) (laughs) So they they have the part here where they mention, wait, isn't it a little weird that the door was welded shut? Which, one, the whole setup of this is hilarious because Hoffman just seems so guilty from the word go. Oh, yeah. Uh, But two... They said it was an awful idea filming the movie that way because they actually had like a door they had to cut through with a blowtorch, and it took hours. It took them like an hour and a half. They said to actually cut through the door <laughs> to get back into the set. So uh, there, there's your problem. You don't want to do it too realistic, or you're gonna, you know, waste an entire day just cutting a door down. I don't know if at this point was Hoffman meant to be just a red herring. He's only in this scene. I feel they were they were planning out multiple movies at this point. If you listen to some of the producer commentaries, they recorded them like as Saw Three was coming out, and they were already talking about, oh yeah, we've got plans for Saw Four and even Saw Five. So they had ideas for how the series should continue, and I'm pretty sure they thought from the start that Hoffman was going to be another villain, and they were just going to wait till later on to reveal that. Yeah, the early version of Saw. I don't know for sure. I could be talking on my ass, but that was the impression I got. Spooky. Also, um, we passed it, but uh, if you look closely at the water in the tub, it's moving because Dina Meyer jumps in because that transition was all one shot from the crime scene to the tub because Bowser fucking loves those transitions. So she runs across, taking her clothes off, and then jumps into a tub. It's really amazing when it's just like, you know, it pans over from a trap and then there's two people sitting in a bed. And all that means is they basically just had to make a Franken set and just pan the camera over. And the other guys are waiting for the first scene to finish so the next guys can start. Which it makes the sound simple, but it's also right. very kind of funny for the prep that has to go into it. Like, a nice bedroom <laughs> set. And also a grisly torture trap on the opposite side of the room. It really. Just funny to think that that's what, like, that's what James Wan thought he was getting in the first movie. <laughs> he didn't have the budget for Franken sets. It makes it feel uh, both more expensive and um, more claustrophobic. Well, it gives a, a lot of visual flash to the series as well. Like, those are standout cool moments that you remember later on or pick up on re- rewatches. And Saw is a series that kind of demands you watch entries multiple times to see where they're putting clues down. So I like it for that reason. Like, it doesn't even have to be thematically lined up with the rest of the movie. It just looks real cool and gives me something else to pick up when I watch it for the third time. <laughs> How quickly things change. Uh, it's a tube TV, too. So here's what I would say a, a big stumbling block of this movie is we're introduced to Carrie, who seems like she's going to be our new lead. They kind of give us a hint in the previous crime scene that, you know, she's got some emotional issues that she needs to work through. You know, she's she's too hung up on Detective Matthews's disappearance or death. 
And that seems like it sets her up as a candidate for someone who has something to let go. Instead, she's in this rig trap and they kill her off in, in this early into the movie. What are we? It's very psycho. 13, 14 minutes in. It's a bit of a misdirect, but it's a shame because we have an actually interesting character with continuity from the rest of the franchise uh, and they just get bumped off so quickly. It's, it feels like you're being robbed of something. If you view this as the cold open to the ending of a trilogy, I can see the logic. As part three of a of a very long running series, this is the worst decision they ever made. Yeah, it it it, it doesn't necessarily harm Saul three because what we got is still very interesting and good, and what the, like what they aim to focus on, but. If you keep going, you're really fucked up. Honestly, it's a interesting gotcha, um, and I would love to see like a version of Saw Three that did include her in some way. But yeah, it it I, I feel like something from the series is always missing going forward because we didn't have her to follow at some point. Mm-hmm. Saying that between her really- or. Am- between her or Matthew, it's just the idea of uh, a Saw protagonist being a long-running character who has survived a Saw trap is something interesting that we don't really get from the series. Yeah. He gets Strom. But a lot of people hated Strom. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like a good version of Amanda, like a flip side Amanda. It would, it would be like a yeah. cool alternate reality version of, of this series to, to go down. Uh, this trap is also kind of based, at least I think it's based on, um, there's this medieval rib spreader kind of like Viking, uh, torture device, uh, that there's uh, quite a few, um, traps in this movie are kind of like based on more like medieval torture devices. Like they go more torture versus trap. Well, we, we see too, um, in the TV show Hannibal, right? There is a killer who flays people and rips their ribs essentially backwards to make them angel wings. I think that was based off of the same concept. Because in yeah. this one, it rips her ribs open, you know, they flay outwards. I, I think it's based off of the same traditional piece of torture. They they did discuss at one point, they were going to have her, uh, her like, attached to four different posts that were going to spread in different directions and basically, you know, like medieval times, where you put someone on a horse in two different directions and pull them apart and rip them into four quarters. But uh, they decided for something a little bit more elaborate. That did not happen when I, at my uh, medieval time show. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bummer. Just bad fake sword fight. One thing that really cracked me up listening to the commentaries is uh, that jar of acid. The first thought I had the first time I watched the movie was, couldn't she tip that over and get some of that acid out and make it a little easier for herself? And of course, on the commentaries, they talk about that. I'm like, no, people keep asking us about the jar and it can't move. It can't. She tries. She wiggles it. it she, she does try to tip it over. She does wiggle it, but it's hilarious to me. That is my first thought, and <laughs> they get sick and tired of. Oh, another great transition. They get sick and tired of having to answer that. Like, no, we tried to address in the film. Pay attention. Uh, the 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 scene coming later on where Amanda explains how every conceivable method <laughs> of escape will not work was written in twenty minutes right before filming. Just because they realized, oh, we're going to have to explain so many plot holes to the internet. Let's just cover our ass. 
there, there's nerds like me that'll stop and ask those stupid questions and like, we don't even want to address them. This is, uh, we'll just slow the movie down with some stupid exposition. Uh, going back one second to the moment where Carrie's ribs exploded. That was a huge fight with the MPAA. Surprise, surprise. Uh, apparently anytime you show someone's front being just ripped off and their bleeding heart, uh, you might have some problems with ratings. So some of the tricks they used to edit this are kind of impressive to me because they said often they wouldn't even throw footage out. They would reorder the footage. So they maybe take a couple of inserts and change the positioning of them or maybe change the tempo of the editing a little. And that was enough for the MPAA after like seven passes go, eh, good enough. Well, as we saw in the first movie, they ran into trouble with repeated blows. So graphic surgery footage is a-okay, but Matthews hitting his foot seven times instead of six was a bit too much for R. Yeah, and I've heard that on other movies as well. Like, it's it's repetition of violence. It gets yeah. to a certain point where they're like, we we don't like this. You, you have to cut it down to X number of blows. You can do three, four is too many. And it, it's weird because it almost comes a bartering session. Like, okay, if we go back and we cut two of the blows out, but we include like a, a kick to the stomach later, can that work? And you you have to barter with them over what abuse is okay. Yeah, like one graphic stab is okay, but repeated non-graphic stabs, that's a little bit too far. Also, just a yeah. funny, this sounds ridiculous, but the person Bowsman got advice from was Rob Zombie. <laughs> yeah that's how he got scenes past the mpaa rob zombie told him how to do it well because this and producers... house of 1000 corpse or not our devil's rejects was coming devil's around rejects. out around the same time well i think the movie shared one of the producers yeah. if i'm remembering right and that's yeah. that's why they went back to that guy's like how the fuck did you get through on that movie and so <laughs> they had some shared experience um also 2005 is when Hostel came out, and apparently that was the one that really tripped people up in theaters. The MPAA received an avalanche of complaints for the violence in that movie, uh, and they were told they were being too light on their their ratings. So Hostel turned it into a moral panic. Yeah. yeah. So basically everything came after 2005 for the next couple of years. The MPAA had to go much harder on uh, just to balance things out because there are too many complaints coming in. So when you look back, one of the reasons studios went so hard in the PG-13 horror realm was because of the backlash, things like Hostel and NPAA being so much harsher than it had been previously. Yeah. And that, that goes for movies in general, all movies, as a, an aspect of the, like, post-9-11 torture movie like trend like we didn't really cover talking about the first movie was like a lot of the backlash against these movies was just a general backlash against any violence in movies because after 9-11 movies got really sanitized and the history here is particularly fascinating to me because uh, on one of the commentaries they mentioned the debt they owed to the texas chainsaw massacre reboot uh, which came out in 2003. That was such a big hit that studios actually wanted to take more chances with horror again. It kind of kicked off a mini revival. Uh, and so you, you you get Saw, you know, a year later. And it's funny to me because the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right, has a reputation of being one of the goriest films ever. And it's not. Like, you go back and you watch it, and it's very tense. But the actual moments of gore are fairly sparse. It leaves a lot to the imagination. 
which meant in the reboot they had to meet people's expectations for gore and actually made a much gorier film than the, the original ever was and that probably contributed to what happens in Saw 2 and even 3, 4, 5, 6, where the gore is right in front of the camera and stepped up. And hell, talking public perception, in the time span between the Texas Chainsaw reboot and Dark Castle's House of Wax, House of Wax was being considered a torture porn movie at the time. <laughs> Be with the same the same violence level. It's just that's how much to society changed in right? just that short amount of time. A movie well, that was acceptable a couple of years ago was now just like hostile. And it's crazy too, because if you go back and look at the House of Wax remake, people kind of lump that into like the fun category of horror. You know, it, it's Dark Castle, right? So it's it's not meant to be like overly depressing or disturbing, but it definitely has those moments, like the guy who's permanently encased in wax, and you can see his oh, eyeball yeah. rolling around. That that <laughs> and the th that and the finger getting nipped off are two like all time great moments of two thousands horror. But yeah, that's but, literally it. And that movie, fun, everything that's else is horror. silly. Yeah, it's it's fun horror, really, is what it is. Even though it has some dark grim moments, <laughs> but you're right. When that came out, that was kind of leaned into as being like, ooh. This is dark, gritty, serious, scary torture porn. <laughs> Another reason why we probably should just shake our heads at uh, that genre. I suppose also, genre. Before we get too far away from it, I just want to talk about real quick. I am fascinated by the behind-the-scenes debate that apparently went on over whether or not she should have killed the kid by not showing up to, to help him late. <laughs> which it was a, a debate because okay we have to show that she's that jigsaw is right and she's hurting her patients by being distracted but the moment a child actually dies because she's distracted we lose the audience so that right. they met in the middle by just having the scene of her being chewed out because she could have killed that kid by not showing up and what i find fascinating about that is how much different an audience's expectation of what a, how a character is supposed to act is compared to, like, real life. Because a, a horrifying truth about day-to-day -day life is if a, if a medical professional is having a bad day, people die. <laughs> like, think about what it, uh, having a bad day at your job where you're distracted and you fuck something up. That happens in every single hospital to, like, 80 people every day. Also, I want to point out how interesting Jigsaw is as a franchise killer. Because the traditional arc for these guys would be something more akin to someone like Freddy Krueger, right? If you're in four, five, six, seven sequels, they take out some of the darkness of the character and almost make them an anti-hero because they know the audience is mostly there for the villain. So they become a little more audience-friendly. They become funnier. They get one-liners and jokes. Never the case with Jigsaw. Jigsaw remains pretty goddamn serious about his thing the entire time. Granted, he, spoilers, dies in this one, but he makes cameos and appearances in all of the films, and he never slides into being a joke, except for maybe the flashback where he's wearing his hat backwards, but that's accidental. Even something like Friday the 13th, you got to a point where Jason is killing people playing 
paintball in the woods and smacks one of the guys into a tree, which leaves a bloody happy face. Sod maintains its tone remarkably well through all the moves. It doesn't devolve into being jokey, funny stuff as it goes, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. Part of it is because they made these things so goddamn fast, and part of it is because the producers remained so consistent. They had a tone in mind, and they could keep it that way. Yeah, the philosophy stayed the same, even if the traps got ridiculous. Even if the traps were the things that got ridiculous, the actual yeah. tone was. was I am underselling how goofy the traps out. kind of get, but they're still presented like, in a very serious manner, even when they're very over the top. Yeah, yeah. Well, the it's more unintentional, I think. Yeah. Um, Jigsaw was allowed to like double down philosophy wise. Um, and here we kind of get, we don't get anti-hero Jigsaw quite yet because that's more like when we're playing off Hoffman, I feel like the memory of Jigsaw versus Hoffman here. Yeah. We're just getting more, we're, we're getting more religious Jigsaw. Like we're really bringing in like a lot of religious iconography. Like I love the back of, um, the wheelchair is like property of angels of mercy, you know, just like stuff like that. And uh, all stuff with the traps and the fact that it's a whole, like it's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's Dante's Inferno. It's the divine comedy with Jeff's going through. Well, I think, and you have, Jigsaw, yeah, I, well, like, I kind of think of like Jigsaw um, here is, well, it's, it's the crucifixion for Jigsaw. He's willingly put himself up on this cross so they can kill him. Yeah, exactly. He's becoming a more, he's becoming an idea like Batman at the end of dark Knight rises. Um, but for mutilation exactly Um, even um, a piece of music that plays during a flashback between uh, Jigsaw and Amanda is like called baptism and stuff like that also just let can we just bring up the balls of like we're gonna have Jigsaw dying and laying in a bed the entire movie and not well, the, the, movie dying, but actually dying of a brain tumor. <laughs> well, that's the other thing that's fascinating about Kramer is he doesn't become some sort of superhero as they go on. He doesn't become more scary. The most action we see from Kramer is some of the flashbacks in Saw 1 where he's like being chased by a detective tap. Most of this is like he has helpers doing the work for him. In the first movie, he's laying on the floor for the entire film. The second one, he's just in a wheelchair and he gets the shit kicked out of him. This one, he's lying on his deathbed. Kramer, for being one of the most prolific slasher, if you want to call it a slasher, villains of, like, the post-80s boom, really doesn't do jack shit. It's all, it's all philosophical, which really sets us apart from everything else. Your villain doesn't have to get his hands dirty directly. Also, another great transition there, where we've got uh, Amanda walking into the room, makes it look like she's in the same place as Jeff. So I love Amanda's Jeff, who we forgot was in this goddamn movie because it's been like 30 it minutes. It was, and what a beautiful time period that was when we forgot Jeff was in the movie. I'm sorry, so, Jeff. <laughs> You're just not a good character. So one of the anecdotes about this was that crate was about seven feet off the floor. And this was uh, McFadden's first day of filming. And he asked, like, what do you want me to do? And they're like, get in the box. And he apparently was not super pleased about being stuck in a box for most of his first day. Uh, there, there were apparently some butting heads between McFadden and Bowsman. Uh, for starters, McFadden didn't watch the first two Saw movies before he signed on, which 
Another thing was apparently upset about because like, hey, these are our movies. You should know what you're in for. So he rented out like a DVD player and a copy of the movie and forced him to sit down and watch both of them before filming, which apparently did impact McFadden's performance. Like he changed how he's approaching the movie after seeing the previous films. There's a couple of other little moments where they butted heads. Uh, I I would say nothing major enough where they came away hating each other, but uh, I got the sense that these two guys maybe didn't uh, love each other so much as some of uh, the other relationships that have formed out of these movies. Faden didn't love the, didn't exactly like the gunky stuff. For sure. Which does make me this, wonder this if dude was in the Titus, script. and now he's <laughs> in a crate. Yeah. Uh, I keep making like ugh, noises that were going to be all over this commentary, and I swear to God, I've had about an inch of this drink. <laughs> I, I have like a, most of a pint glass to go. Like you can stop drinking it now. Mike, this is my game. I do love how often Bowsman makes fun of in, in in I think every commentary how close to the fucking ground he actually is. Yeah, well, like it's like so unnecessary said, to even lift him at that point. Yeah, in real life, you know, seven feet off the ground that that seems really intimidating. But by the time you put it on camera, you're kind of like. Okay. Everything feels shorter on camera, yeah. Right, yeah, and they just... This one did have the largest budget of any Saw to this point. You know, $10 million compared to, like, the one-point-something for the original. They had uh, just over 30 days to film the whole thing. Like, they had multiple sets instead of just doing everything inside of literally, like, one room. They they were, like, really stepping up in the world. But that didn't mean they had unlimited time where they could go back and fix that forklift and change it around to make it look like it was 20 feet off the ground. So, man, this is one of the reasons why I feel like people have identified much more strongly with Jigsaw than any of his victims and why he's kind of seen as an anti-hero. Because you have scenes like this where Jeff just just harasses his daughter and just is like a, kind of a sad sack, violent asshole. Like, you, you don't get a lot of sympathy for this guy, which is impressive considering he had a kid die from like a, a driving accident. You think that'd be a guy that would be easy to sympathize with and you'd want to see him win his games. But they can't make it too easy, right? They can't put an angel in there or else it'd be bad for Jigsaw. You wouldn't sympathize with Jigsaw if he's just killing totally innocent good people. Yeah. So it's it's even though they do still I, think I don't go know if they ever really knock. struck right here. No, not with not with Jeff. Um I didn't think they took a lot, they did it in kind of an interesting way where scenes like this where he doesn't go the stereotypical route where he just admonishes her and yells and stuff. He's kind of, he's being very, like, verbally abusive, but it's very restrained and still trying to be calm and kind. So it's still kind, it's still in that realm of balancing acts where it's someone who's greatly damaged. It reminds me of the parents from Stephen King's It, where you're like, oh, these assholes. Like, they're only in one scene, you're still like, ah, oh, goddamn, why can't the clown eat them? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there, there's a couple of pieces in here that really strengthen, I think, John's standing as a martyr, which maybe is intentional, because mm-hmm. we've already talked about how he's 
purposely setting himself for a crucifixion here. He's becoming a martyr intentionally. But I think the fans maybe took that too literally. Because more often than not, I see people saying, you know, Jigsaw had a point. We're coasting through life. And it's like, the whole ending of this movie seems to refute that idea. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you can force change. The Saw series seems does seem to to philosophically forget this movie ever happened. Very much. Because, I mean, that's the like really fascinating idea of this movie. I think where you're ma- you're having Jigsaw become a martyr, and it's it's really doubling up, heading him to preach and really give forth what his ideals are. That make a lot of sense. So you can get people who do the, like the Heisenberg was right kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but it's also at the same time showing you very blatantly that Jigsaw's way doesn't fix people. Like yeah, it doesn't he hasn't actually saved anyone at the ending of this movie. He literally, there is no one he saved. Like the stuff that's wrong with Amanda that made her hurt herself and turn to drugs and all of that is still there. And so it's manifesting into her becoming a murderer. Like it's actually, it yeah, actually made refocused. her worse than it was before. Like mm-hmm. it's actually a very, can you believe it? Saw is a very pro therapy film franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of the things I think that makes this, even though I, I feel like this is definitely the weakest of the three, it does overall make it, a strong ending to to this as, as a trilogy, like I just as a, as a self-contained trilogy. But there is very much a strong emotional core to all of this. Yeah. Well, like they said never, they wanted to make expect- this almost. They said they wanted to make this one too, like more of a romance because there's the love between Kramer and Amanda, not maybe more platonic love, you know, but. Yeah, there's emotion here, more so than you would expect for a third entry in a Saw film. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone walking out of Saw 2 was expecting the Amanda as Jigsaw movie coming next year to be an emotionally wrought tragedy. <laughs> About how that doesn't right. work. Like, you know, and I think that's, when we all watched it, I think we all recognized, like, okay, Saw 3 is actually a really good movie, like, really well-constructed. It's a great character piece. It completely goes in the opposite direction of what you thought. But the part of you that kind of just that also really wanted, like, a cool Amanda as Jigsaw's apprentice kind of thing yeah, never got it. And I think we all kind of, like, carried that with us. And I think a little bit of that reaction is what kind of transformed the direction of a lot of the sequels, too. Um, where it's like, oh, can, could this have been Saw 4 or 5? And we got, like, just Amanda's Jigsaw movies there at first, and then she, like, slowly turns or something? Instead, we, like, jump right to here, because the movie's point is, like, no, that actually doesn't happen. Like, Jigsaw's wrong. And you well, Just that. imagine how easy it would have been if they're doing sequels. They could have just set Amanda up as the new Jigsaw, eliminated the problem of, oh, our series villain is dying, and then cranked out like a hundred of these. Like, just a different one each year with Amanda putting people in confusing traps. Uh, uh, but they, uh, they again, did Amanda, try to wind this all together. Yeah, once again, Amanda dying is great for this movie, but fucks the series going forward. 
Oh, yeah. Um, also, um, uh, talking about Amanda, there was actually, it's not in the movie anywhere or anything like that, but a backstory they came up uh, with for Amanda, um, Lee Sh- uh, Shawnee Smith did, and Bowsman kind of working together, is she had an abusive parent. So that's part of like the trauma and what led her into her life. And that's where a lot of her projection onto, onto John is. Again, shockingly uh, emotionally and psychologically rich for this movie. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's what I was trying to say at that last point. They could have easily just cashed out and just done sleepwalking sequels from here on out and just done Saw 2 over and over again. But they're they're trying to have the best of all worlds where they can have unlimited sequels, but they are driving a very lore-dense plot. (laughs) Which I, I think that's why, why I've ultimately like let go of any kind of disappointment with that that potential plot line not being followed up. Which is like, again, yeah, we could have had a couple of really awesome like Amanda's Jigsaw movies, but at the end of the day, those movies probably wouldn't have been about anything. So they probably would have been about as good as the other Saw sequels we got. And I really yeah. respect Winnell for going, no, 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 this isn't going to be, this actually isn't going to be Friday the 13th. Like, no, I'm, I'm going to, t- these three movies are going to tell one story, beginning, middle, and end. And then there's another arc that you can follow that's telling a completely different story, however they choose to do that. Yeah, and we do see after this one how much power the producers have in the series. The producers have always been particularly strong in Saw, but the influence of James Wan and Lee Winnell really diminishes after this. Uh, I I think they kind of walk away and they collect checks after a certain point in the series, which does reflect on the final product. But it's it's just fascinating to see it like... thrilled after this. Yeah, but he does stick around for a couple more, so that's interesting too. But a job's a job, and if you're this close to the franchise, I'm sure you wouldn't want to let it go either. You know, this is probably very special to him, so why would you want to jump to something else when there's still a job available? By the time Plus, we get to the end of his so tenure, with, by the time we get to, uh, I believe, Saw 5, he's just embezzling from the project to make the movies he actually wants to make. <laughs> exactly. He he doesn't want to be making these any anymore after this, but we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. Plus, just imagine how exhausting it has to be to be a part of this series. A new entry every single year. They are editing these as they film them because they have about a month to make each one. Then they have to do a little bit of post-production. They have to strike the prints. They have to do the marketing. These guys are out there like recording commentaries for each one of these because it's in the days where special features ruled. And if you had a DVD without anything, no one would buy it. Plus, you have to write the script for the next one. You have to do your casting, your scouting, your set building. It's absolutely bonkers for seven years they were able to ride the machine so efficiently i cannot think of another franchise that comes even close to that level of production there's there's nothing the 13th wasn't that efficient and they were just in the woods with topless ladies (laughs) you'd have to look at like japanese movies from the 60s where they're making like three zatoichi movies in a year that's like the only thing that's even in the same ballpark and the thing is 
it seems like, oh, but they're all in like, they're all filming like one warehouse. You could film all this in a week. Like, sure, the actual filming, but look at all the traps and shit they have to build. Like, that's and they did stand by. They wanted that's... these traps to actually be very physical. Like, they wanted them to sort of kind of work like they would in the movies. They weren't yeah. mailing these in, making, at least at the start, impossible traps that could never work in the real world. So there's a lot of thought and care that goes into this stuff. Plus, um, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. David Hackle, if I'm remembering yes. right, the production designer for these. It is not easy to make something look grungy without it making it look like a cartoon haunted house. Like this, these movies have done an exquisite job of looking like really shitty, worn down, grungy warehouses that you could find somewhere abandoned. Maybe a, a heightened version of that, but they still feel believable and not fake, cheap, or crummy. Uh, also, how does this whole sequence feel more Hellraiser than the chain pulling at the beginning? <laughs> I mean, you walk into a room, there's a naked woman, everything's very blue. It's <sighs> This was an interesting thing. Um, this is once again where Rob Zombie's uh, advice came in, where the MPA Sage Rob MPA Zombie fucking hated this scene um, because they felt it was uh, sexualizing, um, and a lot of people watching the movie took that away too, which is insane to me because I have the same point Bowsman has, which is how do you find this sexy? And that's the point that Wait. that's why he stripped her nude he's like okay she's gonna have water sprayed on her so then it's clinging to her body then it looks like it's becoming titillating as it goes on if you make it stark it's just terrifying and that's what he explains to the MPAA and he ended up making no cuts yeah the the idea that if she was in a white t-shirt and gets sprayed that just works against so many stereotypes of you know the sexy bikini contest kind of thing what t-shirt yeah. contest so that's why they started nude, which I definitely see his point. Um, and it doesn't, yeah, it's not lingering. It's not erotic in any sense. Uh, the nudity adds to the terror because one, it definitely sucks when you're tied up and helpless, even worse when like all of your shame's out. Like, I don't want people seeing me naked when I'm tied up in a room. So this starts kind of a new trend for the Saw series, right? In the first movie, it was kind of a one-room thriller. There were two guys trapped in the room trying to figure out what's happening to them. Uh, in two, we take that concept and explode it. All of a sudden, it's not just two guys. It's a whole party of people, and they have a series of traps to work through. By this one, it's become a gauntlet. You have Jeff, who has to, in the B-plot, work his way through an entire giant sprawling dungeon of a warehouse, each one with a different person who's trapped, uh, and it's a different test for him. It, it's kind of a template they would reuse, the style they would reuse more and more often. Uh, we really the see it in... Style, yeah. yeah, most of the other Saw films have taken this idea where one guy's just got to have a hell day and get through all the traps. Uh, and then there's an A-plot of Costas Mandler being tracked down by detectives, which kind That's of takes so the place fun. of this one where it's Jigsaw on an operation, operating table. Uh, I think it works maybe better in some of the other films. Here, it's frustrating because we spend so much time away from Jeff, especially in this cut, to get back to him and they'd be like, oh, no, 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 his plot's really important. It just, it took like an hour to get here. Yeah. It feels like all the Jigsaw stuff is way bigger than Jeff's little challenge on the side, but we still have to care about the B-plot. 
it, it works against the film. Not it doesn't destroy the film for me, but I think that split harms it more than some of the previous styles of traps. Yeah, it definitely establishes my biggest problem with the Saw series going forward. You have all of the interesting material being diluted by, and then we cut away to a completely different generic Saw movie where traps are just happening. Yeah, it's I, it's very big on the set pieces, right? Oh, he walks into a room and it's a freezer. He walks into a room, oh, it's pit guts. And it just feels so divorced. Like they could have put these in any order they wanted mostly because typically no one survives. And it weirdly almost has a video game-esque structure where you're bouncing between themed levels and then extended cutscenes. Like that's that's the, the Saw sequel structure. So all the people uh, Jeff comes across uh, talk like NPCs. Oh, God. <laughs> this is another one of those, I am a bad film critic, and I can't help myself. This dude is wearing multiple layers of clothes, but he doesn't think to, like, put any around the exposed areas of flesh while leaning into these bars. Look, the Jeff... The fact that his face freezes drunk. to the bars, I'm like, Jeff, you deserve that, you dummy. Jeff is Jeff. Jeff, why... why? I was really working through it. Because even from the first viewing of this movie, I'm like, man, Jeff sucks. <laughs> what What is it about Jeff that makes us all hate this character so much? Is it these moments where he's just so pathetic he can't save her, but he wants to? No, I He has think several it's... bits like this where he, he tries to save people, but he's too late and wishy-washy to be effective. I think... I don't want to say, like, it's the performance, like, it's a bad performance. There's something about the way McFadden plays Jeff, that there's no, there's not a, a lot of charisma to it. It's too realistic. And it, yeah. because it's too unrealistic, yeah. it's uncomfortable. You, this is a, this is an unfortunate case of too good of an actor in the role. Yeah. It feels like even though he watched the first two Saw movies, eventually he doesn't quite get the material he's in. Yeah, and and we were coming off the first two, which had where the lead lead actor, even though Jeff's not necessarily the lead actor in this one, is like going through and and adding dialogue and and stuff like that. And Payne's not really doing that, so he's not. There's no like personalization to it, which I think would have helped a lot. But I do think just I don't. I do feel like he might be miscast. He's a great fucking actor, but I don't yeah, think... I, yeah, I don't want to say he's a bad actor. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, you know, say what you will about Wahlberg, but that guy came with very clear ideas about his character and enthusiasm. Uh, and Matthews is, is, you know, slimeball, but he's a much more engaging character to me. Like, I'd much rather watch that guy fuck up than Jeff yeah. be a sad sack who fucks up. Well, to be a Saw protagonist, you have to engage with the half-campy, half-dead-serious tone of the Saw movies, which is yeah. kind of a hard thing to, to match. Right. And again, too, these are... I, I hate to keep harping on it, but I need to stress how absolutely fucking insane this is that they have Saw 3 coming out on the third year of the franchise there wasn't time to really reflect on the legacy in the same way as, as something like, okay, let's say they're making a new Star Trek movie. Well, there's all the history of Star Trek. Sure. 
But in whatever franchise they're doing, there's probably three years between movies. So you have time to stop and think about every possible reaction or event that happened in the previous film. You don't have that with Saw. You're basically making them and then you have to immediately jump to the next one. So it has to be tough for the producers or the writers or the directors to lean back and and learn from previous efforts. I think it's a blessing and a curse because sometimes it allowed them to keep making things without overguessing themselves. But it, it didn't give them the time to retro what they were doing and, and make it small improvements that could have maybe helped later franchise entries. This scene here, uh, we mentioned previously, kind of an improv scene. They they originally had it end after that scare, and they decided, oh, we need a little more time to explain <laughs> why Lynn just doesn't murder her way out of the situation or, like, run away. So they, they had to get a little bit of extra exposition in here, and it's done in a very entertaining way. You get the conflict between these two characters, which will become very important in the climax of the film. We need to see how much Amanda really doesn't care for Lynn and the way she kind of fucks with her just show dominance. And you get to see Shawnee uh, flex her comedic muscles a little bit with just this awesome, overly competent movie bad guy uh, yeah. uh, take she gives for pretty much like just this one scene. This is the, one of the few scenes where you see Amanda entirely in control, not just posturing that she's in control. Right. It's it's a good bit of personality for the character, too, which is a shame that she, spoilers, dies at the end because you see stuff like this and you think, ooh, that would be an interesting jigsaw. One that's constantly fighting between having that clinical level of control you'd expect from this type of character and someone who's completely unhinged, who uh, self-harms, who rigs traps sometimes when she just needs to express her anger. It's It's a setup for a really interesting character, and it's just such a shame that they cut that line off. And I will say, I think some of that is very ha- is handed very ham-handedly at the end. We'll, we'll talk about it more when it happens, but I'm disappointed with how they force the ending of the movie in, in some regards. But hey, we get Amanda back in Saw 10, so that'll, that'll be fun. <laughs> I, was, uh, I, do, I do one thing that kind of prevents me from uh, loving this one as much as I'd really like to is I, I think of these three movies, this, this is the one that this is the one whose non-linear structure fucks it the most. Mm-hmm. And in this uh, sequence in particular, I can't help but wonder if maybe throwing all of this at the beginning of the movie might have given, might have uh, added to the structure a little bit, might have made things seem a little bit less focused, uh, less unfocused here. I would, yeah, like if this were like an opening segment, but the opening is really crowded because they already put the Matthew stuff there, which they took out of the middle to add the continuity to the previous film. And then they felt obliged to have that big opening trap to, to kind of hook the audience. See what I did there? Hook, hook the audience. Uh, and I don't disagree. I think both of those were actually pretty smart choices, which would make this bad as a a third part to all of that, because you wouldn't be introducing Jeff or Lynn until 30 plus minutes into the movie. And we already have such a long stretch where Jeff is doing jack shit. 
It's um, also... No, you go ahead. um, It it would also kind of give away that, okay, the movie's about Amanda in some way. Like, we're seeing the slow... Like, we're seeing pieces start being put together now between her behavior and these flashbacks as to where her psyche is and where it's led up to her actually becoming a murderer. Yeah. One thing too, I this is this is something I wanted to mention before when I mentioned the gauntlet or labyrinth style of trap setups. They're fine for when John Kramer is dead, but I I disagree with them as trap styles for the traps where John Kramer is alive. Because his whole thing is like I gave everyone a choice, and normally people are active participants in his traps to some degree. Mm. If you're in one of the labyrinth traps, you don't get to participate. Like the woman who is in the ice room, totally immobile. She she had to depend on Jeff to save or condemn her. Same for the yeah, one we're about to enter now. Yeah, they're they're just being punished. Uh so it's not their game. They don't get to participate at all. He's he set them up for murder. Uh that's the part that gets me because normally Jigsaw's whole MO is yeah, the deck's stacked against him, but I gave him a shot. These guys, they don't have a chance. It's really all up to the protagonist walking around, whether they live or die. And normally the protagonist is not competent enough to, to rescue them. So it's it's not even close to fair, which is supposed to be a thing that Jigsaw is proving. He's giving these people back their will to live or making them reassert their livelihood. Ah, uh, shit, the dummy fell over. This is what happens when you have Malort. It just destroys your puppets. Uh, I like the story uh, Bowsman tells about having to film this twice, because the first time the footage came back and it was hilarious. <laughs> Which I imagine has to be very easy with any scene in one of these movies. Well, in horror films in general, it's so easy to make something that's goofy or unintentionally funny. It's really hard to get something that's scary. And a lot of times it's not even scary until you add the music. Like Bozeman's talked about that as well. There are some scenes that went out in the original cut that didn't include the music that he wanted. And uh, the, the climactic trap how- does not have music in it. Yeah, which reshaped how that trap is experienced for the audience. And the music really does make some of those scenes or changes them. And in horror, too, maybe it's a little Mickey Mousing to really get people to jump on the stingers. But without the sound design, it's very hard to be scary. So I imagine if you just film something and you bring it back in its raw form and you watch it, it can be almost impossible to tell, does this suck? Like, did, did we generally make something good? can we fix this or is this always going to be bad no matter what we apply to it? Uh, can you hear me by any chance? Yes. I can hear you. Mike, can you hear us? Are you in a trap? Oh Mike is, God. Mike's been kidnapped by Jigsaw. I must say Mike is currently in the bottom of a well. We're actually watching him now. He's wearing a tie that's too wide. Uh, about to be covered in pig innards. Question, am I back? 
Yes. They're back. Hooray! I was trying to fix the connection problems, but they're still happening, so it's probably unrelated. Bummer. Yeah, you guys have been breaking up a lot tonight. Oh, weird. Yeah. I've been able to hear Jimmy just fine. Folks at home, this is how we make the stew. <laughs> it turns out sure. every Bop commentary is actually a piece of a jigsaw puzzle that has to be assembled. <laughs> uh, my voice has been cloned by CGI. It's amazing. A sentence that doesn't actually make any sense, but we can't edit it out. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrifying philosophical concept. Yeah. It's a great Bradbury story. All right, so to go back to the concept of the labyrinth traps here, we have another one where there's a man who's totally defenseless, uh, and his sin was he applied the justice system. Like, it's it's not even like a... It doesn't seem like this was, like, corrupt judge or anything. He basically was like, uh, this was an accident. This guy shouldn't go to jail for the rest of his life. Jigsaw is an asshole. Yeah, that's that's where where I'm coming from. Uh, But it is such a great trap. Because it is a little too involved, you know, someone is feeding all these pigs in it and they know just how much slop will force a man to drown in it. Like that, that's, oh, that's so much money in just slaughtering. Uh, this is the one where Luanel was like, I wrote this and even I don't understand the logistics of how any of this would actually work. <laughs> <laughs> right, and it liquefies the pigs instantly. Like they just go into this blender and they're just goo in two seconds. But I can ignore that because, one, it's such a gross way to die. Like, drowning in pig offal. Uh, and two, the emotional hook of this one, I think, is fantastic. Like, yeah. the previous room, Jeff had to reach through some cold pipes to get a key. Like, I don't know what he's learning there. Uh, okay, whatever. This one makes perfect sense. He can only retrieve the key by burning the possessions of his dead son, which we've seen he's he is he's obsessed over. He can't let them go. It's a really great psychological test for this character. It makes perfect sense here. So I can forgive how silly the pig slop is in execution because one, it's gross, and two, thematically it ties in so nicely to what Jigsaw is attempting to do. This is the ideal saw trap. Yeah, something they had to fight for, too, because they, like, a lot of people upstairs did not understand the emotional crutch of the scene. Right. Wait, he's not sawing one of his limbs off? Then then how is it a trap? He's just arguing with a man he blames for his son's death? Boring. Take your time, Jeff. See, I, yeah. <laughs> this is why we hate Jeff as a character. He's like, dude, fucking get a leg on here. But I, I do think this scene works much better than a lot of the other saw traps. Yeah. So, something I was thinking a lot when watching this movie was, damn... The, it, the second Lei Whannell stopped fully scripting these, the saw traps immediately started having less and less to actually do with anything. They're just cool, yeah. That's all. That's all they are. Yeah. They're cool killers. They're they're designed in a vacuum, pretty much, yeah. and their 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 involvement to any kind of emotion or theming in the story is incidental. Isn't that a bummer? Because it, it sets you up really nicely. I just don't know if you have the time with a couple of months to write all of those out in a, a satisfactory way. But in these moments, I think it really works. Like, it shows the whole premise built out to fruition. Like, it, it just hits its potential. 
Also, and the fact he burns that it, guy's it, dying like, on oh, pig. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, just the fact that he bur- he actually presses it feels like such it, it's such a emotional gut punch, but also like a victory moment simultaneously, which yeah. get, which is a very weird feeling to have the audience like participate in. If we're supposed to believe that Jigsaw is going to change these people, we need traps like this, where the guy's actually making some sort of emotional headway through his trauma. One golden key. It's very hot. Don't touch it. And it's also an, an interesting. Th- <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Also interesting to think that. Uh, fitting in with the tradition of Saw being about really blatantly obvious shit being in front of the faces of people and who are being played with. I do like the idea of Jigsaw sitting in his bed while Amanda's watching this on those screens going, I really, really hope she's actually paying attention to the point of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Is it that, that's an interesting thing to, to consider upon rewatch that Oh, uh, literally all of this is just for her benefit. It's just supposed yeah. to be showing. She's supposed to be watching pointing things out for her. Yeah, which I think a lot of people don't realize is both in the same way Saw Two, the flashes you're seeing of them in the house is everyone watching a Saw movie on the monitors. Like it's not live, and while this is happening live, the point is Amanda is experiencing a Saw movie. Like that's what's that's essentially the B plot going on. The, the, the entire sh- type of movie this is and the structure of it and what everything means changes once you go back and rewatch it with the idea that this is Amanda's game. Although I would still say there are parts of this that are personal to Jigsaw. Yes. Because we have the whole the whole piece where Jigsaw has an inoperable tumor. He can't take it out and he's dying. So he punishes everyone else by putting them in traps where they must cut pieces of themselves away. And in this one, his ultimate trap, he's punishing a surgeon who seems to be the number one group that he's mad at. Like they can't reach into his brain and take out the thing that's killing him. So he's going to hurt as many doctors as he can before he goes out. <laughs> Jigsaw is very It's just the Unabomber. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit like that, isn't it? Like, one, yeah, he needs a doctor to save his life, sure. But it feels like a lot of this is he's roped this woman into his plot. Pretty sure she's going to die in the most gruesome way possible. And her husband as almost a fuck you to surgeons in general, rather than just as a way to train his apprentice. This is revenge. This is 100% revenge. And that's what makes Jigsaw such, like, an interesting character as, like, a, a horror movie monster, you know, villain kind of thing is he 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 espouses all of this philosophy and all these ideals and it's there and it does drive him but he makes himself out particularly in this movie to be a martyr and, and be more than human more than a man like he shuffles off the mortal coil at the end but the, the games continue for him so he he lives on but but his humanity and his petty human bullshit paints all of his ideals and all of his philosophy. So he's not actually following through on it. That's what's so fucking fascinating. It's like 
he's so confused to why it's not fixing people, but it hasn't even fixed him. Yeah. To get away from that great conversation point, a real highlight of the entire series here is this surgery scene. Brain surgery. (laughs) Brain surgery. Another thing the MPAA apparently was okay with because it was pretty darn close to actual surgery (laughs) instead of just made up fantasy sciencey stuff. Yeah, they basically just had to say, um, you can watch surgery footage on the Discovery Channel that looks exactly like this. But it's, oh, it's so gnarly just seeing that exposed bone while the guy's alive. Just, here's how the machinery works. It's like, it's like every time in Star Trek, the next generation, where they just peel back Data's face to fuck around with his, like, Mm -hmm. positronic brain. (laughs) And God, like, uh... It's interesting to interpret this scene uh, as Winnell seems to, as Jigsaw putting himself through one of his own traps with Lynn as the instrument. Yeah. I mean, if you You think about it, he takes it just fine. He's not like any of those bitch contestants. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't cry. Uh, I know wuss. It's interesting to think of these three movies as. Okay, everything is based around two people in a trap that's different than what they initially realize. And what I like, what I find interesting, so interesting about all this stuff in their makeshift hospital is at the end of the day, Jigsaw and Amanda are the two d- guys chained up in a bathroom for this movie with the Lynn yeah. as the trap. She is, I mean, she is the MacGuffin. She is the thing everything's revolving around. It, it's why there's almost something weirdly symbolic about the fact that she has the big ass uh, collar around her neck because she is the instrument of their destruction, ultimately. She is the thing Amanda was supposed to solve. I guess that does make it a good foil for the first saw. Um, in this case, I guess John knows he's dying eventually from this brain cancer. It's just how long can you drag it out? So he's he's the atom in the situation. He's just stuck here forever. And is trying to see if Amanda can uh Dr. Gordon her way out of things, which she fails to do at the end. So you kind of get that that foil situation where Gordon proves, oh, I want to live again. I, I I can be better, I can be different. And Amanda does not. Granted, at this point, we don't know what happened to Gordon, so that's probably a bad comparison, but it it works better, I guess, with Saw 3D in the mix. Look, until we get to Saw 3D, in all... In all contexts, Gordon's dead. Gordon's so dead. As long as that lawsuit's happening, Gordon's fucking dead. Yeah. The lawsuit's still happening. Gordon's dead. Which so it doesn't colors, even matter. It colors everything so much, though, if Gordon just died from that trap. He cut off his foot for nothing. There was like, ah, well, whatever. Sorry, bud. He I'm didn't pretty fit our sure arbitrary rules. He cut it off like two seconds too late. Sorry. I'm pretty sure he would have hemorrhaged to death within the the first five minutes of losing that limb. Yeah. Well, they show that later on. Like he sticks his foot onto a, a one of the pipes and cauterizes it. Yeah. Uh, jigsaw backstory. Uh, so this begins the part that really sours me on the movie. I still like Saw 3 quite a bit, but John has this flashback. He sees his wife and he, you know, in, in a hallucination says, I love you. And Amanda confuses this for John telling Lynn. Uh, Obi, sorry. I, 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 
<laughs> they get so excited on the commentary when he walks by. Um, and I hate that. I really hate what they do to Amanda here by having one of these stupid forest contrived. John loves someone else, but me? No. It it cheapens the characters, I think. Like it forces the motivation at the end. It's better than not having any motivation for Amanda's twist, but that doesn't excuse the execution here. I feel like it was not done well and it drives me up a wall when you have these little moments. I don't have like a strong reaction to it. It's not my favorite thing, even though I, I love Shawnee Smith's acting during this part. Um, I all, her entire performance is fucking top notch. She she does well with the material she's given. I just think she wasn't provided but, with good material in those moments. Uh, but yeah, I'm not a big fan of that. Though it does lead us here, which I like. Um, I love this whole sequence, which is also like thought of. This is not great. On the day, but pretty close to it. Yeah, this um, is great. I have no problems with this particular scene. Yeah, the whole uh, I love you thing, it's a little bit too on the nose. Uh, I don't have, like, a massive problem, but I do agree it's a little bit too too on the nose. That is a very, uh, we scripted this very quickly and just needed to hit a certain point by a certain point in the script. It's It's very much script math. Okay, yeah. how do we get to five? Uh, okay, here's a three, here's a two. There we go, slap them together. Yeah, it gets you to the answer, but I, ugh, it does not work for me, which is one of the fatal flaws of this movie. I, And that's just taking this as a trilogy ender, not even as part of an extended franchise. We've kind of discussed some of the flaws, like killing Carrie off early, or maybe Amanda dying in general, that hurt later entries. This is just a moment that doesn't service this film, and it bums me out. And again, you, you give them some slack due to the speed and urgency at, at which they're creating these things, but I still wish they could have found something that worked a little better. They're trying to seed future bits there, and it does it falls flat on its face to me. But we are getting at least this awesome fucking sequence with uh, cult leader robed fucking jigsaw. Yeah. It's it's funny to me because this the whole thing is soul patch. Yeah, <laughs> they brought it back. Uh, they had to punish Amanda right for being too controlling in her series. The, the the whole thing is right. She's seeking control, and that results in her murdering people by controlling their fates entirely. So Jigsaw is is putting her in this test to try and get over some of those pieces. But in all of the Jigsaw flashbacks, he's basically doing the same shit. Where he's like, "You have to give everything to me, your body, your soul." It's like. Little hypocritical Jigsaw the murderer? I think so. There's nothing cherishing your life about this. <laughs> I love all the commentary jokes, too, about <laughs> if Lee Winnell was a little smarter, he would not have murdered himself in, like, the first Saw film <laughs> and forced this section where there has to be a flashback where he gets killed. <laughs> like, well, the producer's like, hey, man, if that was me, I would have ripped myself a much better role into a giant franchise. Like, fuck, dead after one? You fucked up, bud. They, Meanwhile, I'll never be able to see that mask anymore. I'll never be able to see the pig mask again without hearing Shawnee Smith saying, let's get picky with it. <laughs> <laughs> she's so excited about that in the commentary. She's so proud of that joke. I love the commentary between the two of them. It's so adorable. 
Oh, God, Tobin Bell and Shawnee Smith being best friends during the production of this movie and going on long walks where they discussed jigsaw things makes me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) They do, like, you can tell in the commentary, like, these guys just have great chemistry, like, good friends. Uh, This is something I think we've talked about earlier about uh, fans like me forcing them to have to explain everything in tedious detail. So we get this flashback here where John has to inject himself with a muscle relaxant and relaxant and explain it to the audience. <laughs> Here's a plot hole we're closing from part one. Shut up, nerds. Which it, it was just especially at the that time. is an incidental because like you even get that little look from Shawnee of like, oh, he's using a needle in front of me and he doesn't realize how stupid that is. Yeah. Um <laughs> it's great, but yeah, at the time on like the Saul forms, like seeing scenes like that was so cool because we were all on the forums discussing theories about whether or not, you know, stuff like that stuff was what Jigsaw used and, and things like that. Uh, also, there's a part in this scene um, that I still just count as canon because it's like half there where like Amanda's supposed to tie the key to like Adam's foot, but then she just throws it on there to like get it done. <laughs> um, but they, to address my complaint from Saw 1, we're like, God damn it, that wasn't fair. That was just in the tub. That's still the intention here, but that uh, that one bit where he gives her specific instructions is cut out because the producer was like, look, we got to finish fucking filming the scene. You can't, like, just hang for, like, one extra pointless line. Yeah. So. Which wouldn't have been that point. Like, you still get it, but it does make such a difference to how so many things played out because John is so controlling exactly. about scenarios. Everything. It really does. And then you realize, oh, the first one, the first game was fucked in the first place because Adam was supposed to have the key to basically unlock himself from the start, and that changes the whole dynamic of the two. But the game didn't play out that way. And then it ties into this one as well because we eventually get the scenes where Amanda has to mercy kill Adam, which seems like something she's doing on her own. Yeah. Yeah, that whole the whole sequence of events, and I think there was another sequence thing. I think they filmed. Um, I, I think like um, Amanda and Adam, like actually having like interacting like a in an elevator or stairwell or something. Yes, like that. Uh, they pass each other on a staircase. That's the first thing they ever shot for the for the movie, actually. Yeah, um, I think I think just because Le- Lewinell was on set at the time, like okay, go walk <laughs> into this thing. <laughs> And they did it to kind of like like go do something useful, um, emotional weight to it, and so they like kind of knew. So they let them like kind of know each other beforehand, and of course, Lionsgate has locked that scene in a vault for some reason and never released it. Um, I must have read about that somewhere because I'm I'm having like this weird thing where I'm like I could have sworn I saw that at some point, but it's on the uh, it's on it's on a special feature. If you Uh, if you go on Amazon right now, it's on the end of the unrated. Uh, version streaming. Okay, maybe I saw that years ago or something because I never owned these special editions of the movie. That was a point I wanted to get into, though. This is amazing. It's as a time capsule. Saw came out right at the height of special feature DVDs where you had things like Anchor Bay would release a horror movie in eight different formats over five years and people would just keep buying them because there'd be a new commentary or new making of featurette or deleted scenes. Something doesn't happen these days the most you'll get is movies re-released in 4k and that'll be the exciting new reason to buy it again yeah this this movie somehow folks and this fucking blew my mind yesterday when i was finishing up my prep has six commentaries 
there there's six commentaries for this film. I can't think of too many other movies that have that many. And granted, those are spread over a couple of years because there was the initial release, then like an Ultimate Collector's Edition. But that fucking blows my mind that they... It was a two-disc release. This was like The Lord of the Rings. Right? The Saw movies, despite most of them being made incredibly fast and not having time to focus on special features being made day of, are stacked if you go back and, and find some of those older releases. There's rated cuts, unrated cuts, director's cuts. There's all these commentaries so far though in terms of legacy stuff only the first saw movie has gotten like a stacked 4k where they they went back and put in like two hours of special features and a new commentary track yeah it bums me out because man back in the day if you had a successful movie that fucker would be loaded you would get so much cool shit my 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 dvd uh, copy of saw 3 has in on the in the case in the case is embedded a film cell. Wow. That's how serious they took this shit. I, I do miss like when they would release an Evil Dead movie and it would just be packaged inside of like a latex book of the yeah. dead that would dissolve in five years. <laughs> <laughs> there are this is one of my favorite Evil Dead facts. People that bought Evil Dead 2, the special collector's edition that came in a like latex book of the dead that talked, like if you hit the right spot it'd make noises. Those things are such big collector's items. They've been storing them in freezers to make sure they don't dissolve. There there are people out there that just have fucking Evil Dead 2 copies sitting in a freezer like it's a, a wedding cake. <laughs> so they can turn around and I, resell it someday. I, I, that was I advice I saw given when those came out. And I was like, if I need to put my DVD in the fridge when I'm not using it, I don't think it's a good investment. <laughs> It's so funny because, like, you guys couldn't have just made that out of literally any other plastic that would last forever. Uh, I do I, miss I it. Wanna, I, I, I would... I'm, sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to, just as a solid nerd thing, I just want to bring up that she's wearing the pants from the Tibbs documentary. Sorry. Uh... <laughs> Is Adam talking backwards? He's scary. Yeah. Ghost. I make fun of that scene, but it's it's not a bad inclusion. The fact that she's feeling guilt over that guy. We we see very clearly when she has to murder Adam in the flashback by strangling him that Shawnee Smith is not having a good time with her actions. Which yeah. is kind of fascinating because we, we find out in this movie that she's essentially staged murders throughout yeah. like her, her later career. But this one, when she actually has to go in and kill a guy because he failed his test, really bums her out. I, I don't know what to say about that, where it leans on the character psychologically, but I think it gives a great wrinkle and makes the character a little more messy and interesting. Yeah, well, it's really interesting here because I'm saying interesting, but um, it's boring, and we all know it. We never say yeah, anything cool. Um, I just really like Saw, but what I think is more complex about how they handle Amanda is really highlighted in this scene, where this isn't the moment she becomes a murderer. She's not freeing him and letting him go. She's yeah, which she could easily him. do. Yeah, she's still killing him to free him instead of just letting him go. But she, this is the moment kill. she becomes a murderer. This is like this weird halfway point where you can see that something isn't right with her. But she yeah. has like this humanity that Jigsaw has unintentionally completely fucking wiped out. 
this character in her mind is dead and she's just wiping the board instead of letting him starve to death over days she's gonna strangle him which is mercy a thing we don't see a lot with jigsaw characters in fact we don't see a lot of great characteristics of jigsaw characters across the franchise humanity is in general presented in a pretty grim way even the ending of this film it's a weird blend to me because it refutes Jigsaw's idea that if he hurts people enough, they will become better, which, yeah, that's a pretty fucking stupid idea. We should stop abusing people and thinking we'll make better people out of them. However, to get to that point, they have to show that, oh, people will always be awful. They're incapable of making good choices. (laughs) That's maybe not fair because Jeff does try to save everyone he encounters. He just does a really shitty job of it. But it kind of comes down on the side where in the Saw universe, everyone's pretty much bad at heart and can't fix themselves. Well, I think the, I think if there were any kind of uh, moral takeaway from these movies, at least from the early ones, it's just that people will always (laughs) default to their, to their worst behavior. If you back them into an unwinnable situation, (laughs) The Kobayashi Maru? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah. I, I gotta think that's... Uh, they did get one Kirk the... to cheat. He broke Star, <laughs> Star Protocol. I do think that's one of the um, the ironies of, uh, of this film. The idea that uh, Jigsaw is trying to educate Amanda about like her unwinnable traps while missing the thing directly in front of them, which Amanda tells him at the end, which is, there's no difference between the two of them. All of his traps are ultimately unwinnable and wrong. It doesn't matter if you survive, you didn't win. All all doing, all all abusing someone to improve them does is scar them further. So to say one nice thing about the Jeff plot here, we do get a moment like this, where one of... He actually fucking saved someone. It's pretty rare in Saw for, like, victims to actually talk to each other, it feels like. Yeah. But he has this moment where he explains his point, like, hey, man, literally, I could have sentenced that guy to the electric chair. You would still feel like you feel. Which is a pretty valid point, the way the character's written. That That's an important point to make, and it's a really important thing for Jeff as a character to hear on his emotional journey. It's great we got that little scene... Uh, Jeff naturally, like, rages out and cuts into the next trap before he can digest that bit. (laughs) And we're put into another trap. I'm a little torn on this one because it's such a gruesome way for this guy to die. He did kill a kid, but they they also show that it was not, like, malicious in any way. It was an accident, yeah. Yeah. This is one of those Uh, things where you fall more on, like, Jigsaw's an asshole. This guy doesn't deserve to be ripped in quarters like this. I, and I mean, this is where, in case you didn't get, like, the divine comedy of it all and the biblical nature <laughs> of everything, hey, here's a dude on a cross. A, cr- a cross slash, like, Vitruvian man thing, which I love because that really sums up how Jigsaw operates. Like, this religious versus, uh, this religious melded with uh, design and technology. Not to mention the fact that it's called The Rack, bringing in uh, Inquisition imagery. 
the rack. So do we think this is about as far as you can push a saw trap before it becomes silly? Yeah, I, I would say so. Because it's very gruesome, but it's also like, goddamn, this would take a decent amount of work to set up to like be able to twist each limb individually on a timer. Like, This is some solid engineering. I remember sitting in the theater going like, okay, this is really cool with this. This is up like to a line. Like this is very different than shit we've seen before. Like this is big. This is really big. And I never expected that it would actually get bigger and really ridiculous until there's like melting ice cubes and jackhammers and shit. But um, this is definitely like at the line of where it's yeah not in I think like, like the open trap of soft. Yeah, I think the opening trap of like Saw Five, if I'm remembering right, where it's like two people fighting and there's a buzz saw between them. Yeah, is when it gets uh, yeah that, like this is a little much. That's uh, just the one I referenced in the last commentary as the moment I gave up on the series. <laughs> so it it feels like it's it's glancing on uh, we we've gone too far. They've mentioned on the commentaries though, it is incredibly difficult to create a simple trap that really strikes right at the audience. Because anyone watching this, whether you think it's too complicated or not, they're going to identify like, oh shit, having all my limbs basically twisted around would be excruciating. Like, it's... it's oof. They get to the emotional core of the trap fast enough where you can ignore kind of the setup. I'm sorry, I get distracted by this every time because it's very silly that there's just a shotgun that he has to somehow <laughs> maneuver around. Like, what is the, what is he learning here? This is such a worse idea than him burning his belongings. Oh, it's actually... Are you willing to take a bullet? It is... The gun thing is not interesting because it's there's nothing really hard about it. Like, you can actually avoid the gun really easily. Well, he just does, and then accidentally kills the, the gun. Yeah. But it's also weird it takes him so long to just pull the thing. Like, the judge steps out. I was like, you have to do it, Jeff. Why? The judge is a pussy, but... The judge is kind of like, oh, it's a gun. I better not. And then Jeff just reaches in there and magically does it I right. Actually Except think for the judge. This, I mean, they had to, I think, put the gun there. Because otherwise, it's... yeah, the, the, the judge would just grab the key and release him. And the trap, but, yeah. But from... A storytelling standpoint, if the key was literally just around the dude's neck with the tape recorder, and all Jeff had to do was just unlock it, that would have said a lot, I think. That's, yeah, because it becomes an emotional struggle. Purely emotional, not like logistical, where he's got to figure out how the fucking gun works. (sighs) But again, then you have the problem of the judge would just take the key. Yeah, Uh, at that point, just kill the judge before this. Right. Yeah. yeah. They already did that in the first room. Like, you could find a way. They have unlimited possibilities. They could find a way to accidentally kill or purposely kill the judge and let Jeff have this emotional beat where he has to decide if he's going to forgive this guy or not. Um, and so this, this one bothers me because it feels like it's a weird physical challenge. Whenever Saw gets into just, can you do this feat? I don't know. I, I kind of lose it. I get it when it's a pain thing. Like, are, are you brave enough to cut your eyeball out? But when it becomes a mental trap for the guys, I'm less interested. 
Also, I want a back, uh, like a, a flashback scene where they are measuring the arms of the judge and the first woman in the freezer trap and Jeff's arms so they can place the key at the exact position. <laughs> like a design, like, oh, the judge couldn't reach far enough. He had stubby little arms. Jeff, he's like a basketball player. He can reach right in. Great appliance, though, with half his face gone. Oh, yeah. Again, I don't, I don't want to smack everything about the movie. I sound very negative. I don't mind Saw 3 that much. I like it. Uh, and I think the gore is really great in this movie. The the brain operation scene, that's incredible stuff. So realistic. Even this, like, I, I think there's some moments, like, when the bone's spurting out where they, maybe it's a little CGI-assisted or something that don't look quite right. By and large, we have some fantastic stuff like that, like the makeup appliances and all of it are very good. But it doesn't seem gore overwrought. Like, not to keep saying, like, oh, the sequels are really bad. I mean, yeah. That's just a kind of a fact where it did become more hostile, like, or it is that there is a lot more gore. I, I would like to say, honestly, I, I just finished my Malort drink and I feel like that guy having his head just pushed <laughs> after he's already dead. Uh, oh, the fact he keeps clicking, by the way. Also, this it's, shot, fucking him kneeling in front of the, it's so good. Um, man, working, working at an actual machine shop when I was in high school. It was always terrifying when you talk to the guys in the back of the shop who worked the lathes and you'd be helping them. They'd be like, all right, no long hair, no like headphones or anything. If that gets caught in the lathe, the machine does not care about human flesh, which is being like 16 and hearing like the machine does not care about bones. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a horrifying thing to hear. And then they tell you like, yeah, man, one guy got stuck in there and it wrapped him all the way around before he hit the stop button. He was lucky we didn't scalp him. It's like, cool. I'm 16. You want me to do that work? Okay. According machine work is terrifying. That's true. Uh, according to, to the Tetsuo films, uh, machines do care about the flesh. <laughs> hey, long live the new flesh, everybody. Cronenberg, <laughs> it's all about the flesh. <laughs> Did you ever stop to think how interesting Saw would be if other directors got their hands on it? Like, what would a Saw movie from David Cronenberg in his prime be like? He would still have shotguns blowing heads up. It'd just be the Star of Scanners. But you'd have a very different product. Like, the Surgery brain tumor stuff. Is the new game. Did you just turn into the, the, the surgeon from Flapjack? Surgery. <laughs> Uh, by the way, I think my favorite part of uh, Le Winnell's so solo commentary for this movie is him taking a moment to point out, as the writer and co-creator of the Saw franchise, that they're called games or puzzles. Not traps, because traps are how you catch something, and everybody in a jigsaw trap has already been caught. Fair. All right. I have never yeah. stopped speaking about that since the DVD came out. <laughs> this is the first time I'm hearing it, and I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. God damn it, I've been wrong for so many years. Uh, I, one thing I forgot to point out, I, I should have mentioned this earlier, the Rattler that I'm drinking is actually <laughs> grapefruit. With blood orange. Oh. Uh, blood orange. Blood. Uh, blood. There will be blood. There will be blood orange. I'm now drinking the Rattler by itself. And I liked this beer. I, I had one to test it out before I made the cocktail a couple days ago. Um, 
having finished the cocktail and now drinking this Rattler, it's 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 ambrosia. It's it's amazing. It's not that good, but my mouth is just like you can drink something without feeling like your soul is getting torn in half. What? My God. I thought I would adjust to Malort after a while. Like, you take enough shots of it, you'd be like, eh, whatever, it's cool. No. It just is poison every time. But it does make everything taste so much better afterwards. It really, you get like that uh, shine back in your life. Or like, oh, God, I could be drinking toilet water and I'd be so happy right now. Cut my foot off and I'll jump around that prosthetic. It's going to be great. <laughs> Malort Vodka. It makes you not mine that you just saw. Oh, no. Malort Vodka, which a good vodka shouldn't taste like anything. Vodka is supposed to be a clean alcohol. So you put the Malort in it and it's just going to come extra strong Malort. <laughs> I don't want that. I really do not need that in my life. It's a thing I can make and I don't want it. So if I'm not mistaken, I think this scene is new to the director's cut. Yeah, I believe so. Because I, I went most of my life, like from college was when I first started watching the Saw films. They were already a couple of years out. We had a Halloween basement party where each night they would show a different Saw movie in order. Uh, I have been living with like the hour 45 cut until basically two days ago when Mike sent over the link to the director's cut. Uh, and it was very weird listening to the commentary and they're like, is this scene? Where did this scene come from? Like Shawnee Smith even having to laugh at Tobin Bell, like, no, nah, man, that, that, this was originally there. They just cut it off for theatrical. And Tobin Bell being like, oh, well, I didn't know that. <laughs> I was on the same page. This is all new to me, folks. It all seems very silly to have this fight, considering we know the stakes of like, hey, uh, if if you fuck this up, your head's going to explode. Like there's shotgun shells pointed right at it. It's, and if she kills the surgeon, I... no one can save John. I understand why they put it back in because it's a nice little, it's like a nice, cool scene that originally actually it's been building to this. Yeah, um, there is some kind of energetic release the film needed in this moment where these two characters were building to this. Yeah, and Jigsaw originally, like originally, there was a scare where they split apart and Jigsaw standing there. It's the only time you see Jigsaw standing, but I don't think they even filmed that part. Because uh, they decided, like, they would just keep Jigsaw in, in the one's place. Um, and a lot, and some of this doesn't logistically work because of some other stuff they cut out where she turned off something, uh, like, they can, like the heart monitor connection, or she thinks she did, so that's why she's, like, walking out this far. And there's a lot of things that kind of, like, confuse yeah. it. It's, she's in a very it. intricate trap, so it's it's easy to work your way around it, because it's you a, cut, a, connected like, to a heartbeat here, monitor, yeah. is connected to, like a, uh, like, a sensor, like a proximity sensor. Yeah, uh, and you have to worry about Amanda just stabbing her, too. Well, um, so it's a little bit awkward. I get why they put it in, just because it's a character scene, I think. Even though it's a fight, it is a character scene. Mm. But um, I, want, I, was... I want to point out uh, the actual original letter that she's reading there, that was left as a big mystery and kind of a cliffhanger in Sawhead's minds for years, where people would buy the DVD and like freeze frame to try and identify parts of the letter. That whole letter was released very recently. Like someone had a scan of the original letter. 
which blew my mind because I spent a lot of time on IMDb just hearing people talk about that. I just saw it on like Blu-ray.com this morning. Oh wow, I did I did totally miss that. Yeah, I'll go find the link. I'll send it to you later. Uh, it, it basically boils down to like it's a very sincere letter from Jigsaw, basically being like, "I really, you're the most important person in my world, and you're facing a lot of challenges right now, but I think we're going to get through it. You're I'm, you're like the light of my sky." So, like, people talked about it for years is, like, a lot of clues. Like, it mentions other protagonists or other apprentices and all sorts of stuff. And really, it's just a very direct letter of John being like, you're pretty neat. You're you're fucking up, but we're going to get through this. Tobin Bell wrote it, actually. Um, Did he? he wrote it. Yeah, he wrote it as, he, he wrote it and left it. And I don't think any of them knew what it said except Shawnee when she opened it and read it for the first time while they were filming. Oh, so they did like a Willy Wonka thing. So it was like a live reaction. Yes. Um, and they point out in the commentary, like, Bowsman makes it very clear. The letter's not important. Like, it's just a letter to Amanda. Like, it's important Wait, to did, her. It has no bearing we, on any plot. Because we don't see it, though, it becomes such a, like, yeah, a thread. Because they didn't leave us a lot at the end of this movie. Like, how the fuck are they making a four? We know there's going to be more. Because it lands on a cliffhanger. It has to be important. Well, then you... And uh, you I, it, it, Cuts from that to, like, him pouring wax on the tape, which fascinated me uh, at the time. Which we don't learn about for, like, two fucking movies. Yeah. So I just pulled it up. Shawnee Smith actually posted the letter herself, so she's the oh, source. Okay. So this is this is real. Uh, the letter reads, My dear Amanda, the enclosed is for you. To ease the waves in the sea, you must navigate. Talk with Anthony McDonald at the branch. He will take care of all. Uh, I think he was the original lawyer. For, for Kramer, and they switched yeah. it up between movies, uh, so that's why it says Anthony McDonald. Uh, do not look back, only ahead. You have arrived at the door, walk through. Don't look back, you are strong and well. I know you think you have nothing to teach. We teach what we need to learn. That is enough. May I always breathe life into your soul as you have done to mine. With love and hope, I believe in you, John. So there we go. A 16-year-old mystery was revealed basically like yesterday teaching is a big um, theme well and i mentioned before too there's that idea of it's not romance romance between the two it's not sexual romance but there's teacher padawan that's too nerdy um Protégé. It's mentor e yeah protege kind of it, it's it's that throughout the whole film where it's a guy who realizes a student will not live up to what he has done, but he loves them too much to admit that and wants to give them one last way uh, excuse me to to kind of prove that they're worthy of the legacy they're going to inherit. I think that speaks to the ego of John very <laughs> that's, much that's so. my interpretation of it. Well, John has a high opinion of himself and he just thinks that she is not matching what he's laid down, but he still loves her because she's the one that loves him. Yeah. But there's also this notion of to Jigsaw, she's a protege. She's an apprentice. She's like, she's a function. A daughter, everything. Yeah. Well, I think that's where it kind of stops where there, there's, there is some sort of love, but I don't think it's father daughter for Jigsaw, but for her, it's father daughter. She feels like he's adopted her. And yeah. that's what she's struggling with. Sorry, this is a great conversation, but I do want to interrupt. This is the thing we were talking about earlier. So in this yeah. fight between Detective Matthews and Amanda, 
the MPA had a lot of problems. They they went through like eight passes or something nuts like that to try and get this cleared. And they had to do math like, okay, how many times can he bash her head against the wall? And we're seeing that now. There's one. Uh, I thought there was going to be more. Two. There we go. Like, it's so many hits against the wall. The MPA was like, no, you can't. You You have to cut it off earlier than that. It's too violent. Which maybe we think is silly now. I think looking at films of the past, we always are like, oh, why is that the cutoff? But take it in the moment. It's still fucking insane that this guy just rams her head against the wall like eight times. I'm pretty sure she'd be dead. Yeah, that's, I think, why the MPA had a problem. Like, in real life, if you do that to a person, bang their head against the wall with that much force that many times, you'd have bloody pulp. Yeah, I, I never liked that um, stuff. Not because it's overly violent, because it makes me go, okay, we've officially entered fantasy world. Like, like this character should be dead from that much brain from uh, that much brain. Yeah. Or at the I very mean, least be kind of fucked up in the immediate aftermath of this. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're already kind of trending on realms of unbelievability because Matthews, we saw at the start of the film, has turned his leg into pulp and is somehow still walking around and doing a fight until she smacks his demolished leg. Yeah, We're still going to see more of Donnie Wahlberg running around these corridors later. Yeah, well, (laughs) and that's where we get into an interesting, uh, once again, that word I keep overusing. Um, uh, um, So, Bowsman, you can tell, got into a very large fight over what we're about to not see. Um, They filmed Amanda killing Matthews. Uh, pictures of it exist of, of her walking up and murdering him, uh, stabbing him in the throat. Yeah. The producers I know, did much more on the side of that. That's something they should have done. I think it was a mistake yeah. they did not, but they needed it, it, ammo for like future movies. That, that's what it came down to. Bowsman's thing was, I'm trying to make this movie the best this movie it can be. You are hurting it by wanting to be ambiguous. Because at one point, Eric Matthews didn't just, like, survive. He was a very big part of an early version of Saw 4. Mm-hmm. Until he just was kind of, he was around for a couple pieces of plot, but was never, like, a big deal. So which, which actually kind of makes it more infuriating. Like, okay, if at least he was being saved for a big plot, that was one thing. But just showing that right. he's alive at all kind of fucks this. Yeah, they they wrap him into but, a plot later, but it's not satisfying for him, and it's not satisfying yeah. to the audience. It just wraps up the But they could have done right there, and it would have justified those flashbacks a lot more. Yeah, and it removes something from Saw 3. The whole point is she kills Eric Matthews. That's the moment she becomes a murderer. She's right. no longer Jigsaw. And it works so well. Yeah, and you had that callback, too, where he explicitly says, you're not Jigsaw, which calls the philosophy in question that she's supposed to be the protector of this legacy, and she's she's failing. We find out later on, this whole test is to see if she can carry on that legacy, which she fails. So it makes that scene even more important. It still has importance, whether he lives or dies, but her not listening to him and murdering him instead would really just slam that out of the park. Yeah. And Bowsman attempted to edit in a way where it heavily implies that 
but he knew that yeah, the producers are going to bring back Eric Matthews, and there's nothing I can do. Yeah, about it's going to undo that when there's a Saw Four, and there's going to be a Saw Four. Like yeah. even at the time, they knew there was going to be multiple more. Even if this one had flopped at the box office, the first two made way too much money for them to even stop the franchise. the The wheels were just turning, and they knew there was probably going to be at least five Saw movies at this point. And I think that's where I, as a as a Saw head, kind of started to pull away. Even though I was still excited about the movies, when Matthew shows back up, I felt like we have broken something intrinsic to what we've seen. And once we break that, we're we're experiencing plot, but we're not experiencing Saw anymore. Like, but it's like we entered a, an alternate reality to things. And the thing that I knew ended in a certain way, and now we're watching this what-if scenario instead. Speaking of what-ifs, there, there's been talk for so many years now with the idea of legacy sequels that ignore some other sequels. Like uh, the idea of there being a new Alien movie that ignores Alien 3 and Resurrection and all that. What have you ever stopped to think, like, what if the producer came back at some point and made a alternative universe Saw 4? <laughs> like, what if what if we erased all the other stuff we did and we brought Shawnee Smith back, like, somehow res- rescued her from the grave? I sometimes or, think about that. Like, it, like there, it seems like there should be room for a graphic novel where they could explore that kind of world of Saw, like an ongoing series or something, if they felt the need. Or even I'm a kind world of surprised where... it's not even been floated. Yeah, uh, a world or just where Jigsaw and Amanda did die, but okay, what does that world look like 10 years later? Like, who follows in Jigsaw's yeah. footsteps, or, or what They've what attempted that, like Spiral, Spiral really tried to lean into that idea, like, we were inspired like by this other guy. Kept going. Yeah. I yeah. feel like there's more to, to plumb the depths of there with, with that idea that I think... You know, maybe it didn't come out at the right time, but maybe it actually would have done better as like a TV series or something. But well, I was thinking about that too because, like, The Purge, which is kind of a funny one because it's almost an anthology the way it is already, that got its own TV show that ran for two or three seasons. Yeah, and it almost feels like a Saw series, despite the graphic violence that could be toned down for television, could work. You know, like the big twist would come, but you would spend a whole season building up to it. You could have. Yeah. I think there's a lot of potential in a series that no one's ever really floated the idea, as far as I can tell, of doing Saw's TV. Two two, two things that spring to mind there. One, it's frankly fascinating that all the times they've tried Saw and it's failed, they have never resorted to the idea that Saw doesn't belong on the big screen. It's not a Hellraiser where they decide at some point, fuck it, this is direct-to-video. They've stood strong and been like, no, this is a this is a $100 million franchise. Each entry should be making bucks. These will all go to the theater and we will dominate October when they come out. I, I'm so impressed and fascinated by even with the missteps, they keep coming back and saying, nope, we know what we have. We're, we're not giving up on this. And I, I love that from the producers. The second point I have forgotten because I've had two shots of Malort and it turns out my body just wants to die. <laughs> I had some further point. To, uh, here's okay. That, I'm remembering now. The other thing I'm impressed by is the fact that the producers have never gone back on the idea that Jigsaw is dead. They've never cheated by introducing, oh, John Kramer had a diabolical brother? 
They've never done any of that kind of cheap stuff. They haven't introduced the supernatural, where it's the ghost of Jigsaw. They've they've stood firm on the idea that, hey, we made our choice. Jigsaw dies in part three, and he's dead. For... <laughs> God damn! Wow. The next seven movies. Yeah, Jesus. Which I respect. Well, I mean, at least but... at least Saw Ten they've announced is, is takes place weeks after part one, so it really is Saw Two. Yeah. As confusing as that is in the chronology. Uh, so he's alive and well in that one. Just we assume there is nothing that takes place in the present day. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Real, real we haven't quick. seen it yet. We're a couple. We're like a week out from Saw Ten, so we're just guessing what that movie's going to do and be like. Real quick, did, uh, considering this series' love of continuity porn, how likely do you think they are going to find some way to tie John's revenge plot in that movie? With the plot of this, like somehow this is the that's the that's going to end up being the story where John learns how hollow revenge is, and that like that sets him on the path to uh, to educate Amanda in this way or something. It that feels like it's too obvious sense. not to do. Yeah. Right. Well, the whole thing of it too, right, is the plot of Saw Ten. From what we know, is John goes to Mexico for a miracle cure for his cancer, and they they dupe him. It's not an actual cure. They just take his money. And so he gets revenge on these people. The obvious solution to that is all these people probably die. I don't know. Maybe he lets one or two of them live so they can do other spinoffs. Who knows? But we know John's still dying of cancer by Saw 2 or 3. So the revenge has to be very hollow. He kills people, but it doesn't solve his root issue. So to Jamie's point... It would make perfect sense that they, that's kind of the moral that they impact with, or impart with that movie. Particularly with Amanda coming back as well, that would give it a uh, some some reason to do that other than fan service. Yeah, well, money. <laughs> I'm so fascinated by what they're going to do though. If Saw Ten somehow makes like 120 million dollars, like what if Saw Ten is actually really successful? What are they going to do? Are they going to keep making Saw movies that are technically prequels to two where John Kramer is just dying slowly of cancer and we know he makes it through and Shawnee Smith looks like 15 years too old for her like current role. They've tried other stuff to their credit. They've tried other stuff. They've tried to move on from Jigsaw in multiple ways and audiences just have not turned back up. And I wonder what you're going to do. Cause man, Face it, Tobin Bell is amazing. He's 80-some years old. He can't keep coming back forever. Yeah. Do you reboot the series? It seems insane to say at this point, but like, do you let it lie dormant for five years and come back with a Saw reboot that's totally fresh and a brand new Jigsaw? You almost can't, because everyone would know the twist at a time. You know, they, they, I mean, they did pretty much do the cult of Jigsaw. But I feel like with seven concepts... Yeah, I feel like that concept was still never properly taken advantage of. I agree. Uh, I think There's it's basically, room there if they want to get into it. Honestly, I think it all just comes down to making a Jigsaw successor who doesn't suck. Like it, be- <laughs> be it nice. begins and ends with that. No, just hire a good charismatic actor to be the new Jigsaw for more than one movie. Yeah. Like, stick to it and give them time. But that's so hard, because you're still pledging, you know, like, $20 million a pop. That's hard. The so Lions get you think would be, like, interested in trying it. 
you know, this is a bread and butter franchise for him. It's the uh, thing they could have done literally. Movies, should say because it's the thing they could have only done with Carrie Elway, and they fucked that up. Yeah. So right here, God, this is the finest bit of jigsaw acting where he smiles once the song <laughs> is picked up and turned on. He's so happy. And I, I, I love <laughs> that during the commentary track that he had, uh, he gets asked by Shawnee Smith, like, why are you smiling there? And he kind of hesitates and he, he asks some clarifying questions and talks about some other stuff before he finally gets into like, he, he sees what's about to happen. He knows exactly the result and how, what the bloodshed it's going to end up in. And it's, it's kind of an irony for him. Like, Oh, yep. Well, this didn't work. I guess I was half right, half wrong. Like he gave all these people chances with their traps, but no one ever really passed. Oh, surprise recorder. Uh, but also, it kind of reaffirms that, like, oh, we're all shitty people deep down. Like, no one changes. So, <sighs> plus, the way we interpret Jigsaw is much more negative, I think, than common perception. Where he, he deep down loves this kind of shit. He loves causing the maya, uh, chaos and pain. Oh, Jigsaw but, is so happy this dude's daughter will probably die. That's it. Like, he gets to know, like, he announces it. You just ruined three lives. Bullshit, man. You feel like you know, that little girl who's trapped somewhere, she's probably a goner. Jeff's probably a goner. These people here just died. Lynn's dead. This is also throwing me off because I could have sworn there was a shot of Lynn's head getting blown apart, but I don't remember seeing it the last two times I've they, seen they this. Never, they were never able to rig it. They just had the aftermath. Yeah. It's, it's like a Texas chainsaw thing where you could have sworn you saw like someone saw it in half or something. I could have sworn for years that you actually see like her face explode, like the squibs going off. But again, the last couple of times I've watched this movie, I've not seen anything to convince me that was a real memory. You see your corpse afterwards, but that's totally different. So I would have loved to have seen uh, the original cut of this that they screened where McFadden just tropic thunder cries while cradling her corpse and kissing <clears throat> the stump on her neck for like a yeah. solid minute. Uh. Uh, sorry, one more McFadden story I forgot to mention earlier. Uh, when they're doing the pig slop scene, apparently he had been difficult to work with that day. So Bowsman instructed them to launch a thing of pig slop into his face when he wasn't ready. So he gets hit with it. They film the scene. He gets so pissed off, he storms off set. And McFadden, they said, came back an hour later. Like he went to his his, his trailer, he washed up, changed clothes, and came back and finished the scene like a professional. But there was still a moment where they're like, oh, fuck, did we just scare off our lead actor? <laughs> and I feel like those interactions are probably why Jeff does not have a, a major, major role in the rest of the franchise, despite probably. being the guy who kills Jigsaw. Uh, it just reminds me of the story uh, Bowsman tells in the commentary of really not getting along at all with Dina Meyer whenever they were making Saw 2, and then getting along great with her in Saw 3 just long enough to kill off her character so they wouldn't be using right. her again. That's a flaw. It's, oh it's, it's, it's a bummer, because you can imagine this being a perfect way to cap off that trilogy. I mean, right, you've killed off your obvious jigsaws, uh, Tobin Bell's philosophy has reached its natural conclusion. He couldn't save anyone, and he probably just made things worse for all people involved, and now he's dead. It feels like a great cap, 
The only problem is they've introduced one more game for Jeff to have to play. Well, like we talked about earlier, in the context of the movie, there being one more game, the game continuing, isn't really meant to be a cliffhanger. I mean, it's, it's a cliffhanger. Yeah, as far as just, Le yeah. is concerned, that's just how the series ends. Just the games go on forever, because of course Jigsaw has something planned from beyond the grave. Yeah, and it's, it's, <laughs> there's an irony there, and also kind of shows, like, weirdly, Jigsaw, in his death, was proven wrong, but he continues on as if he's right. <laughs> Which really there's stubbornness there, sure. Yeah, it really sums up the character. Because even by this point, we've seen Jigsaw be wrong many times, and he anticipates being wrong every time. That's why he plans for it. Like in two, he knows Detective Matthews is going to fuck him up, which is why he has everything set up to stop Matthews at the end. And yet he still enacts that plan on the off chance he's wrong and Matthews does the right thing. Yeah. It's it's a weird Pyrrhic victory where he knows he's going to be wrong, but he just has to see, just in case. And the entire series... So I love the, the credit like, for Xavier, dead. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the entire um, idea of this like story ending with Jigsaw dead from beyond the grave, Riley saying, DeWitt, you have to play a game. Smash the credits. That's fucking a brilliant ending. <laughs> it's not necessarily a promise of anything. I mean, when you were expecting four, then it's a promise of something. If not, it's just yeah. like that's a perfect like a perfect ribbon on top of the series. I I do love the idea of permanently killing off your main iconic villain in the third entry. Like they knew these movies made huge bucks, and they still went ahead and said, "Well, if well, we they don't, people are going to think we're cowards because our character has been dying of terminal cancer." We got to make this step, and they they didn't find some cheap way to keep him alive or anything like that. They just went and did it, and it really acts as a great trilogy ender. It's very bold to it. To go back to Hannibal, it reminds me of the ending of season two, where it's like, fuck, how are they going to make more? That was such a good ending. Mm. They had maybe less good results in Hannibal season three, but that depends on who you talk to. Saying that, like, whenever you set up this cliffhanger ending and the next movie doesn't deliver on it at all, or even ever attempt to, um, You've you've started off the next chapter on the wrong foot. I do remember fans were mighty... To refresh people's memories, I wasn't watching these movies in theaters. I was just reading public forum posts about them. We were all very (laughs) pissed, yeah. And that was it. That was the consensus when 4 came out. People were like, what the fuck was that? Like, it didn't didn't continue on the story. Yeah, it it was like a sidequel, but by and large, the perception of it was anger. It, it was it was frustrating. It blue balled the fans, and people were not happy. And I, I think that's when they started to lose their core fan base. You see it in the returns, box office wise, for the remainder of the Saw films. This is where it peaked. Saw three is where they made the most money worldwide, and after that, the the returns diminished. Oh, uh, Bowsman ha- ha- has said, uh, yeah, in the past, like in these years, like since leaving the franchise, like the second Winnell was gone and the saw machinery started then suddenly everyone involved had their own idea with what this story needed to be and what the the saw identity was and everyone wanted to make their uh big splash in, in the mythology and put their thumbprint on things 
Yeah, that's that's the shame. Everyone thinks, hey, I'm I'm the secret ingredient, and it really is. Boy, a lot of things came together at the right time in the right way, almost accidentally, almost by luck. Obviously, skill, and it's hard to replicate that. And it's hard for anyone to take credit. And as soon as people start trying to modify that formula, it morphs and it falls apart. Yeah, yeah, you lucked out the first time, and any twists on that are gonna fuck it up. Again, we're lucky because they made them so fast. That process took three years to really come to fruition and start messing with what we love about Saw. And I, I and I say that not as anyone's malicious about it or too egotistical and they killed it. It's it's natural. Like I think that would happen no matter who you had in charge as producers or directors. Eventually people are gonna think, Well, this is how it should be done. I've been here since the start. This is what a Saw movie is and maybe takes it in a slightly different direction than what the masses think a Saw movie should be. But that's a conversation for Saw Four. <laughs> We're gearing up. This ends the Bop in a movie commentary for Saul, the good year. Uh, I should have made worse Malort drinks for the worst years. Maybe I'll do it the other way. I'll make them better. I don't think it's possible. No, no it's, it's really not. No. I can't stress how bad that cocktail was. I can't. I, I've drank a lot of bad cocktails over my years. Uh, you ever have like bar wop where they just like collect all the stuff out of the, like the, the, the spill trays and just dump it into a glass at the end of the night? That's better than this. Anyways, good movie. That's, the note, I, good movie. that's the note I want to leave Saw 3 on. Don't, don't drink uh. Malort. The note folks, if you, yeah, folks, if you want to listen to more box office pulp commentaries by uh, us truly, you can find us on boxofficepulp.com. We're on pretty much all of the major podcast providers. You can find us on things like Spotify, um, probably iTunes. I think we're on iTunes, right? Yes, it's called Apple Podcast now. Get it right. I'm an old man. I refuse to learn. We're on the Stitcher, right? <laughs> I'm going to still say that till I die. <laughs> so just look up box office pulp you'll find more of our commentaries we're going to hopefully continue the saw series to the bitter end uh concluding maybe with a commentary of saw x whenever that comes out on dvd yep see how that goes i'm real excited to see a man's eyes get sucked out by giant tubes assuming that's what's I, happening in that poster i have not gotten excited for a saw movie in a long time but i've totally marked out for saw x i'm, I'm excited <laughs> So, folks, we'll see you on the other side. Fingers crossed for Saw 10, which will be debuting maybe even before you listen to this podcast. I don't know a release schedule. I'm clueless. I am just a voice. I don't do any of the work. Anyways, thank you so much for listening. That's a wrap. Now get the hell out of here. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. Do we? We didn't get a good like game over to end this one, did we? It would be kind of embarrassing, I guess, if John Kramer did like a game over as like his throat's bleeding out. You know, he gave a, a pitiful game over to Amanda, but yeah, it's it's not over. It would have been really Jeff. weird if if Jeff that. just shouted "game over" and everyone was like, "Jeff, where'd you hear that from?" He's like, "Don't, don't worry about it." That sounds just like a very Lynn's headless thing to body do. gurgles up. Game over. <laughs> So this ruins my uh, idea of uh, having a game over ranking, considering three doesn't even have one. So this is automatically bottom of the pile. One always wins. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, one is probably the best for the and game four, overs. Four is always at the bottom. Game over. <laughs> Why does he sound like Rocky? Because he looks like what Rocky looks like after he gets beaten by Ivan Drago. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kelsey Mandalore. I'm sure you're a lovely human being. I...
really actually like you and other things. I just hate the character you play in this. And also your hairstyle leaves a lot to be desired in these pictures. I really like that we're including all of our apologies in the post credit scene that might get chopped. So one day, Costas Mandler is going to find Mike from his Twitter account and beat the shit out of him. Oh, thank God. Mike has found his own Frank Grillo. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Jamie. I was almost free. Uh, I remember 10 years ago. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.